G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. And yourself? Going well. I'm very much looking forward to our second topic on schema therapy. I enjoyed last week's podcast, Dad, and so looking forward to doing a, another little bit of a follow-up today. So we've called today's episode Practical Progress in Personality Change. So, Dad, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, so last time we talked about some of the principles and practices of schema therapy, which is quite an elaborate therapy to help people change more long-term personality patterns that are getting in the way of them having a fuller and more enjoyable life. And so today what we're going to talk about is some simpler ways of looking at personality change. And so these are some of the main messages I look to give people in a therapy setting. If in addition to depression or anxiety or some other problem that they're seeking help with, there might be burnout, something like that, but it's evident that there's certain kind of personality patterns that are tripping them up a bit, certain ways they're running against the rocks, so to speak, they might relate to schema that we talked about last time. So enduring core beliefs and emotions and behavioral patterns that relate to it. But today we're going to talk about a somewhat simpler way of looking to address longer term personality patterns and especially shifting habits around longer term personality patterns. Well, I'm glad that you said that there is a a slightly simpler way, Dad, because, you know, when we were talking about all that stuff last week, like one of the things that struck me was, gee, it doesn't sound very simple at all in terms of, you know, potentially people could have patterns that go back many years in their life, often to childhood, and addressing that and even thinking of, you know, how am I going to address some of that? Like, you think your personality is one of your most fundamental kind of core components in a way it's kind of hard to change so it can be overwhelming to think about how we go about changing that yes and when we think historically of for example psychodynamic therapy and psychoanalytic therapy they referred to brief therapy as something which unfolded over 50 sessions 50 sessions was brief therapy because of the need to look at childhood experience as well as incorporate the therapist-client relationship, a number of things that schema therapy does. But schema therapy also will tend to unfold over something like 25, 30 therapy sessions would be quite common as well. And so sometimes we have to look at practical ways of addressing personality patterns or going some way to address them that are somewhat more accessible, that we wouldn't necessarily use the full range of techniques that are applied in schema therapy or as long, but can still make a difference to people's personality patterns enough to help people make significant and welcome progress. I suppose, Dad, before we start today, really, it'd be good to have a little bit of a recap on what we spoke about last week, just in terms of the idea that, for example, someone could come in seeking help for depression, they could ostensibly look like they've got to the bottom of that depression, and then say three to six months later, they could come in with a similar reason for their depression. And so it seems like over a longer time frame that that is a repeated pattern rather than just say one cause of depression. So do you want to maybe give us a sense of what some of those motivations could be that lead to some of those deeper problems? Okay, well, people might look for help with depression or anger or different difficulties, even burnout, and there are longer-term patterns that go with it. For some people, there might be issues around intimacy. 
And it's one relationship after another ends in quite an unsatisfactory way. Or it might be people who never seem to be able to achieve to their potential and get sacked from jobs or don't apply for jobs when there are opportunities that would seem to be fitting for them. Or there might be people who so repeatedly self-sacrifice in particular situations that they're so rarely having their own needs met that they're more prone to depression that way and they feel that their lives are impoverished in some ways. So sometimes in addition to the distress that people are seeking help with around sleep or health problems, might be somatic difficulties, it might be a lack of confidence, it might be feeling inadequate in certain kind of ways. We can look at certain core patterns, especially if they've applied since childhood, that might relate to people having a strong sense of abandonment when we might say they have an abandonment schema or being very sensitive to issues of success versus failure where they might have what we call a failure schema or they're so perfectionistic that they're forever getting frustrated and burnt out with looking to deal with work tasks when we might call it unrelenting standards. Or it might be a person who keeps on getting in difficulty with breaking rules in certain ways and it seems to be a pattern of entitlement and insufficient self-control, for example. We can look at these broader kind of patterns, which typically have strong emotions come up, and we can see themes in people's lives around a sensitivity to abandonment or failure or being overly self-sacrificing. And last time we talked about 18 different patterns identified by Jeff Young, the founder of Schema Therapy, and in general psychotherapy, we have ways of looking for those particular patterns, sometimes using a questionnaire, but that gives us a bit of guidance of looking at the main kind of personality patterns that can lead to difficulty. But other times we can use maybe even a few shortcuts if therapy is going to be briefer, but we still want to address some personality patterns in addition to, say, depression, anxiety or anger. Well, what can we do then, Dad, in that situation? Like, if we identify some of these patterns within ourselves, how do we approach it? I think the simplest way is looking to do something different. And so this is where we're talking about looking to shift a personality pattern that we recognise, but also keeping it simpler and hopefully getting some early runs on the board where the person gets more of a feeling of being able to shift a personality pattern. And actually, one thing I should say with background here, if we go back in time, many mental health professionals were not confident at all that people could change their personality functioning. And I remember early on, it would have been my first year of work, hearing a psychiatrist say that once a person is 40 years of age, they're not really going to be able to change their personality in any meaningful way. Well, that certainly sounds pretty pessimistic to me, and I think that we know now from research that that's not true. We actually can change our behaviours and patterns of behaviour all the way through life. We have neuroplasticity, we grow new neurons all through life, we can make new neural connections all through life. People can learn a language in later life. People can also learn to shift certain kind of patterns. But the idea is to look to make it as simple as we can, given that it is difficult. It is difficult to change patterns or trays if we've had them for a lengthy period of time. So I think one of the main things is to recognise a pattern as clearly as we can and 
then recognise the disadvantages of it and look to do something different. So how might we recognise a pattern? Well, in a therapy setting, we might use something like the Young Schema Questionnaire we talked about last time to identify long-term personality patterns or schemas. But generally, people are going to have an idea if they are too perfectionistic. That'll tend to stand out, certainly to a therapist, and often the person will recognise that themselves. Or it will come across that the person is too self-sacrificing. They're not asserting themselves in a whole range of situations at home, at work and elsewhere. They're feeling frustrated with their friends. There's an imbalance in their own interests and other people's. So that's adding to their depression and that might be more evident. Or they're too demanding. That might stand out. Or they're too impulsive. Or the person might recognise themselves that they're somewhat timid and as a therapist might recognise how the person tends to avoid one situation after another where it might involve a conflict in some way or the person expressing an opinion. Or the person might be very wary of letting other people get to know them. So we could use terms like narcissistic tendencies or avoidant tendencies or paranoid traits, which are themes that were used in psychiatry and clinical psychology traditionally. However, these imbalances tend to stand out. And one of the first things when an imbalance stands out, so it's been there for quite a long time, it applies in a range of situations, not just at work, not just at home, not just with friends, across a range of situations, and it's leading to the person missing out in some way in their life or it's interfering with their relationships in some way, these patterns often stand out. They're often quite recognisable, even if we don't use the formal assessment techniques of schema therapy. People's friends will recognise it. Their family members will recognise it. They might have had some feedback in the past. But the idea is that when you recognise an imbalance that stands out the most, that's where people have been getting the most difficulty, like they're forever feeling that they don't measure up in certain situations, for example. We don't have to call it a defectiveness schema. We recognise the pattern. The person doesn't feel they measure up again and again and again. They underestimate their ability. Then the idea is once you've recognised an enduring pattern, looking to do something to change it at a behavioural level. And so I wonder then if some almost mediator or if some tool for identification can be how we feel not even necessarily in a situation but often after a situation like it's one thing I always found like quite interesting in terms of like how often people can surprise themselves with how they act in terms of you know you can kind of be in a situation and look back at it afterwards and you kind of think hold on what, like, what, what was that I didn't sort of you know I, I didn't act in the exact same way that I thought I would there and I suppose that speaks to potentially some of the influences of the schemas and that sort of thing like I think of maybe times when you you maybe reflect on something and you think oh maybe I was a little bit too defensive there or you know maybe I, I didn't respond as well as I wanted to in that situation but you're the one who responded in that situation. It's the same person making the analysis as doing the behaviour. So I just find it a little bit strange that there is that disconnect there at times, but I suppose it speaks to these ideas in terms of their presence. Yes, we're all going to have our blind spots and some people's blind spots might be more prominent and more, if you like, maladaptive or dysfunctional or interfering with their lives more than others. So many of us will have some kind of foibles or imbalance in how we see something or a bad habit in certain ways or sometimes we could 
maybe tolerate frustration a bit better than we have or sometimes we could be more bold in certain situations in various ways. But the thing is, noticing what stands out. For example, I imagine many counsellors or mentors or coaches who might not have been trained in psychotherapy are still going to recognise patterns of behaviour that might be an imbalance that a person has. They might be way too hard on themselves. They might be quite undisciplined. They might not be showing the level of trust in certain relationships that they might. They might seem to have an imbalance of give and take in some ways to their team or their workplace or in their relationships. When there's a major imbalance, it tends to stand out and the person tends to have a bit of a history with that. And so this is where it's helpful to reflect on the person's history and times when They might have previously had certain difficulties that are showing up now as well. The main thing is the biggest patterns will tend to stand out even if we don't use psychiatric or mental health kind of language, even if we don't use formal psychological assessments. But certainly for psychologists or in general therapy situations, we will tend to pick up things like avoidant tendencies or mistrust or insufficient self-control, those kind of things. And so, yes, we would use a schema questionnaire. Sometimes we'd also use the character strengths questionnaire in positive psychology and look at some of the less developed strengths. For example, if a person might be somewhat avoidant, we could use that term in asserting themselves, they might have courage as one of their lowest strengths. Well, in positive psychology terms, you can look at Drawing on your top strengths, it might be zest or sense of humour or judgement or something like that, but also we can look at bolstering our lower strengths. So if that turned out to be courage, it could be encouraging more risk-taking. If a lower strength turned out to be self-control, then maybe the person could, again, practice different ways of showing more discipline in certain areas. So we can use natural everyday language to recognise where sometimes the person's reacting too strongly in a particular direction, overly forceful in their relationships or overly timid and non-assertive. These things will tend to stand out, but it helps to have some kind of way of acknowledging enduring personality patterns that get in the way of people's happiness. What strikes me when you talk about that there is potentially how some people, maybe not say trained psychologists but people who say maybe dabble in the mental health field or dabble in psychology I think there's a tendency to potentially trivialize some of the issues that people actually do go through like as you were describing that there you know like one thing I see on social media a little bit recently and oddly enough you know it seems to be kind of dudes in their early 20s who who are happy to give all the advice but um you see stuff like you know these, if you do these six things every day, you know, you, you'll hack life is sort of the notion of it. And they talk about, you know, if you get seven hours of sleep, if you eat, you know, this much protein and all this sort of stuff, if you exercise this much per week, if you get this much sunlight, if you do this much meditation. And it strikes me as a very kind of cookie cutter approach. And we spoke about it a little bit last week, but what you were describing there and and maybe some of the influence of a therapist or someone with a little bit more training, like it it strikes me that someone in that situation would maybe be a little bit more efficient at, say, getting to the heart of some of the underlying motivators compared to, say, someone who's looking at 
maybe a set of behaviors that really help mood and that sort of thing. And maybe they haven't had the experience with someone who's maybe had some legitimate challenges earlier in their life that lead to some of these schemas. Yes, and if people have more mild difficulties, like say they're fairly harsh on themselves but not extreme in terms of unrelenting standards, then some degree of encouragement or cheerleading or just reflecting back with a bit of feedback might make a real bit of difference. But if people have had more entrenched difficulties or they're suffering from a more prolonged or more severe depression, the chances are it's more complicated than that. And what will tend to happen in psychotherapy when people have training in things like schema therapy is the therapist will be looking out for the problems over and above people's strengths at first. Well, certainly it's looking for the strengths. We always look for people's resources in any kind of therapy. And you look to have the most positive therapist-client relationship you can. You build that collaboration at first and you build the trust in different kind of ways. But then an experienced therapist will tend to search for the areas where the person has run up against the rocks. And an experienced therapist is going to look to help the person get in touch with the more difficult aspects of their experience that have got them stuck in the past. And that typically means looking at painful emotions like shame, different kinds of anxiety and fears that the person might not be fully aware of. They might not just be fearful of failure, they might be fearful of success. For example, they might think, oh, if they start to have some success and then get their hopes up, there might be more expectations on them from others, but also from themselves. And that might be too unbearable if they get their hopes up and then fail publicly after they were in positions of more responsibility. So, hey, maybe best to avoid that altogether and not allow themselves to have or respond too much to success opportunities. Now, that might be an unexpected situation when people haven't had more of that training in psychotherapy to look at the complicated ways that personality patterns can work. So with the milder patterns, less severe patterns, or certainly more recent patterns, then people can do something maybe more readily about that. But when they're more entrenched, more severe then it's often important to look, are there past traumatic experiences that have contributed to that? Are there past experiences in early childhood, including attachment patterns with their parents and significant others that might be affecting how they relate to other people in their current life? By looking for those kind of difficulties where people tend to get stuck around personality patterns, it's often a more efficient way of changing things. But by the same token, you want the person to have some hope in being able to change it. So it's a matter of having ways that are doable to make a difference. Well, just before we do get into what we can do, maybe when we recognize those patterns, Dad, like one of the things that strikes me is that all of the other tools and strategies and you know tips and, and things that we can do to combat, say, emotions in circumstances where someone hasn't got influential schemas like it seems that they're relevant as well because we still need to say control our emotions in a particular situation before we can get at maybe what some of the underlying difficulties are yes i think especially when we're under the most stress or in untoward circumstances or otherwise we're struggling much more than usual there may well be some kind of patterns that have been disruptive to us. And when we do identify a pattern, which is a little bit of a deeper pattern that might contribute to our behaviour or reactions in a range of situations that's been a little bit disruptive, 
then you actually get more return from being able to address that deeper pattern than just the surface behaviours. And the other thing that uh, that struck me about that just quickly is, you know, as you're describing that, you know, hear the sort of stereotype line from psychologists, you know, how does that make you feel? Like, I wonder if that's the kind of underlying motivation for that line in terms of maybe it's a little bit of maybe lazy therapy on behalf of the psychologist to just kind of ask that rather than elicit, you know, some sort of thinking pattern through conversation. But I wonder if that's where maybe that comes from, that, you know, how does that make you feel? Well, that's what you're trying to ascertain to, I suppose, identify some of these patterns. Yes, and look, I've said before, there are a couple of things that I've got a little bit against that notion. One is if we ask how a situation makes you feel, it gives too much power for the situation. In the long run, how we respond to the situation is going to depend on how we perceive it. And we often have quite some choice over that rather than just passively responding to a situation. And also, sometimes over-focusing on feelings is unhelpful compared to looking at ways that we might shift our thinking and behaviour Often that's a more pragmatic way of bringing about change. But yes, it's true that there are some situations that do tend to trigger deep feelings and will predictably trigger those feelings because it does relate to past experiences of abandonment or being betrayed or of major failures that were so hurtful. Yes, it's worth acknowledging that our reactions can be triggered to some extent, but even then, it's important to acknowledge that there are things that we can do to step back from our reactions. That's actually a lot of what we're talking about at the moment. Stepping back from our reactions, looking for any patterns that might underlie them, and then look to change some of those underlying patterns rather than just deal with things on the surface. Well, as you mentioned that, obviously, you know, the, the recognition of those underlying patterns is going to be a huge element of, of diffusing some of their impact. But I know you've got a, another technique that you use with clients called fuzzy logic. Do you want to just explain what that technique is, maybe once we've identified what one of these patterns are within ourselves? Okay, now the notion of fuzzy logic is how do we try and get a balance with a kind of behaviour? Like just say with unrelenting standards or self-sacrifice, for example. What's too much and what's too little? Well... What I sometimes describe to clients when we're looking for a balance in behaviour, patterned behaviour, is it comes back to the idea of fuzzy logic. And here's the story. Years ago, there was like a competition between engineers in the West and in the East, countries like Japan and Singapore, around how you could make trains decelerate smoothly into a station whilst braking or how you could make a lift slowly decelerate as it came down. Now, how do you go about these things? Now, as I understood, engineers in the West, their overall approach was to find the right algorithm. What's exactly the right way of programming this train and the way the brakes work or the lift that's descending? What's the most precise formula for getting it to move as smoothly as possible as it slows down coming into the station. Whereas, as I understand, the engineers in the east suggested using fuzzy logic, which means there was a way of gauging when the train was coming in and it needed to slow down. The idea was, okay, slow down a bit. And there was this way of gauging if it was slowing down too much, there'd be feedback saying, oh, don't slow down quite that much keep going and then if it wasn't slowing down enough it would be 
some feedback saying slow down even more, so a bit more of this, a bit less of that, and it sounded so imprecise. As the story goes, it was almost thought to be, what a strange kind of idea, like how imprecise, that's not going to work too well, a bit more of this, a bit less of that, how's that going to be as good as our algorithms? But what we see is in Japan you're on a train, in Singapore in a lift, smooth as, as it decelerates, and it was better than the deceleration or the smoothness of trains in the West, say 20 or 30 years ago. Now, in other words, fuzzy logic is like adjusting a hot or a cold tap. Too much of this, a bit less of that. When we're in the shower trying to adjust the taps, it's not like you expect yourself to exactly get the right balance. What we do is we try and set it somewhere and then we go on the feedback, too much of this, not enough of that, and you keep on adjusting them until you get to more of a balance. And I think that's like personality change. So just say if we take something like self-sacrifice, someone's maybe giving in so much. Well, the idea is for the person to look to assert themselves a bit more, to speak up a bit more or ask a bit more for what they want or to seek out a bit more for what they want. But that can feel really uncomfortable at first because it's going against the grain. But the idea is for the person to use fuzzy logic. And sometimes that could be awkward. I know from many, for example, depressed women that I worked with many years ago, we would talk about developing more assertiveness skills to be able to be more satisfied with the balance in their relationships. But a number of people were describing, they'd come back to the sessions and say maybe how it didn't work so well. Sometimes it was because their partners were finding it hard to accept the changes they were looking to make. Actually, down the track, that was when we got more partners in because sometimes it really helps two people to change a pattern that way. But apart from that, sometimes people would think they went a bit overboard. They were maybe a bit abrasive when they looked to assert themselves with a friend or maybe they were a bit blunt the way they tried to go for what they were after or express themselves. Now, the idea with fuzzy logic is you don't have to get it right. Same with unrelenting standards. Like just say, if you think, well, this is not the most important task at work, I'm going to try and do it 70% well. Normally I'd aim for 110% and look, it's a bit against the grain, but I know I need to practice doing some things a bit quicker and not sweating it so much. Okay, I'm going to aim to do it in half the time I normally would. And it turns out that you do a slightly dodgy job. Maybe it doesn't matter quite so much, you didn't pick something that was the most important task, but maybe it didn't turn out so well. Okay, maybe overshot, maybe pulled back too much. Well, fuzzy logic, just try a little bit harder next time for the same kind of thing. So a bit more of this, a bit less than that. We can use that also with trust in relationships. If someone's a bit mistrustful, then maybe being a bit more wary or withholding or discerning in relationships, letting it take longer before trusting the other person more. Or conversely, if the person recognises that they've maybe not been trusting enough, maybe affected by their childhood where they couldn't count on their parents' support or they are often criticised, then the person can take a little bit more risk at getting to know their neighbours a little bit more, someone else that they've met in a group situation. They can let a conversation go a little bit further. They might even ask someone to join them for a cup of coffee or anything else that the person thinks of to maybe loosen their boundaries a little bit more or 
give other people a little bit more of a chance. So the general idea is when you pick a personality pattern, looking to do something different to shift the balance. And then it's really important if the person notices some kind of improvement or progress to really encourage themselves for their effort in the first place. When people are changing a pattern of behaviour, certainly related to their ongoing personality functioning, it's worth acknowledging it's really going to take an effort. It usually means going out of the comfort zone because we have this drive to keep things consistent and keep things a little bit predictable and the same. So acknowledging the effort, but especially acknowledge if it seems like I was going in the right direction. And that can be a real driver of ongoing change. Well, absolutely. And I really like that analogy of the hot and cold tap, like, you know, adjusting it like as you say you know oh often you know burn or freeze myself getting into the shower you never get it right the first time but oh, I suppose the uh, the analogy that I almost thought of dad was that I don't know if you ever played that game flappy bird on the phone where it was this little cartoon bird and basically when you hold down the screen he rises a bit higher and when you take your finger off the screen he falls a little bit and you've got to sort of you know get him through all these obstacles and keep him flying sort of thing but all you can do is sort of lift him up or let him drop down sort of thing and so I wonder if it's a little bit like that. It's just, you know, you're getting a little bit closer here, a little bit further away there. But when you were describing that there, there was one thing that came to mind that I think, you know, it certainly helped me in situations, I think. And that's, for example, setting an intention before you go into a situation. Like, I can think of times when, for example, I've, I've met people and, you know, without, for example, setting an intention, you know, you, you walk in and you might meet a couple of people, you have a couple of good conversations and, you know, away you go. That's sort of fine. Whereas if before that opportunity you go, you know what, I've got an opportunity to meet people here, I'm going to go in, you know, all guns blazing in terms of I want to meet as many people as possible, I want to have as many good conversations as possible. It's not as if you have to consciously remind yourself throughout the event that that's your intention at the start. It's almost like just literally thinking about it at first, it puts that little radar up in the back of your head to kind of go, hold on, this is something that, you know, we're prioritising a little bit more today. And so I think even, you know, potentially just before you go into a situation, it could be the start of the day, it could be before you go into a particular situation where, you know, you want to call upon yourself to maybe act in a slightly different way than you have been. Like, I think having that experience where you kind of go, you know what, I'm just going to do my best in this situation to meet as many people as possible or to assert myself you know as much as possible in this situation like I think if we can look at it beforehand and and really set that intention it's not as if we have to keep reminding ourselves throughout it, it just really is something we almost sort of subconsciously remind ourselves throughout that time. Yes, and that intention that you're describing and that way of going about it, that works really well, for example, with dealing with patterns of avoidance. We have an early podcast, I know it's been one of the most popular ones, on addressing avoidance or patterns of avoidance where people tend to have difficulty putting themselves forward, taking risks or asserting themselves or asking for requests of others. It can go with shyness sometimes, it can go with concerns about disapproval but it can make a real difference if people put themselves out there a bit. And that can also be, as you say, in social situations that looking to connect with other people. That intention, pushing yourself out there, countering avoidance in a way, putting yourself forward, showing up in situations and looking to deal with any discomfort that might come up and recognising, well, it's not the end of the world if things don't go so well. 
It's partly the showing up itself and having a go that counts. And when people have that kind of intention repeatedly for tackling patterns of avoidance, you get the sense of how personality can change. So as we can say, our character or our personality is basically enduring patterns of behaviour or habits. And so these enduring habits, they follow on from habits and habits follow on from repeated behaviours. Repeated behaviours will follow on from that one step. So you take one step in the right direction, a practical way of doing something different that's still symbolic of addressing the theme, if you like, that is putting oneself out of the comfort zone or it is going a little bit more for your own interests you know, fairly in a situation or considering other people's interests further. The direction that you're looking to go in steps nudging it that way and repeating it that way and then you can have progress building on progress so what we used to notice in groups where people were looking to tackle avoidant trays that after a number of years I'd run into people in the street who'd been in these groups and their early efforts that were maybe just one step of asking a friend to join them for a cup of tea or a major one going for a job interview years later They were buying a new business, starting a new relationship, buying a house, expanding their friendship networks, having conversations with parents or other people close to them that were very meaningful conversations, including about things that had been painful but looking to resolve that in some ways. In other words, there were these major things that happened over time, not at first, not even the first several months. But if people take steps and step after step after step and then get some momentum of shifting that balance of helping things go in a different direction, that can really help change. And that's one of the themes in positive psychology of developing character strengths. You look to develop certain strengths in novel ways repeatedly, developing your creativity, developing your perspective, developing your zest by engaging in further physical activity. Basically, all the different personality characteristics or traits, including strengths or including countering difficulties, including schemas or personality patterns, basically each of these things by repeated behaviour of looking to do something different and then reinforcing that can lead to meaningful change. Well, absolutely, and, and I really like that idea of having something symbolic. Like, it doesn't necessarily need to be something big, but what that reminded me of, Dad, is, you know, <laughs> there's been probably, you know, a few too many times over the journey where, you know, I've had an idea or, you know, something I've wanted to pursue and I've got a little ritual with myself where I'll go and get, you know, a new moleskin notebook. <laughs> so, you know, you want a fresh, there's just no better feeling in the world than opening up a, you know, fresh notebook and it's just got all the possibilities in the world and, well, for me, anyway, like I love that little symbolic thing of, you know, you're opening up a new book and it's, it's something, you know, very small and trivial, but just even having a new book makes a huge difference in terms of pursuing, you know, whether it be a new idea or going outside your comfort zone. And, you know, you think, you know, a lot of those books have got bugger all in them, Dad. <laughs> I really didn't sort of follow through as much as I probably should have. But, you know, you think if someone's got, say, a thousand moleskin notebooks on the bookshelf of which, you know, say they've, they may have only written two pages in each of them. Well, 
they're a very different person to the person who hasn't pursued those a thousand ideas, even if those a thousand ideas didn't go very well. So it's almost like, well, where do you draw the line? It's kind of got to be, well, well, one pursuit of, of an idea or one time, for example, going outside your comfort zone. Like that's one of the things that struck me about that is that, you know, inherently within going outside your comfort zone, even if it goes horribly badly and almost as badly as you could conceive of it going well you've still taken yourself outside of your comfort zone you've still put yourself in a position to change and and there's still a lot of good that has come with making that decision so in some ways you know you're, you're a different person than the person who didn't pursue that opportunity outside of their comfort zone even if it hasn't gone well and even if it hasn't you know gone as You'd like it too and you still feel that discomfort and you feel as if patterns are being reinforced. But if you look at it on face value, well, you've done something that you've never done before. So, you know, inherently within that, you're a new person in at least one little way. And it seems to me that if you can almost cultivate that, if you can kind of farm that new little way to, you know, grow it up and suddenly, you know, you've gone outside your comfort zone in, in multiple ways at multiple different times. And even if it hasn't gone well, you can still be proud of the fact that you made that decision. You've held yourself to account. So it, it seems to me that, you know, any pursuit at all of getting to the bottom of some of this stuff is going to be beneficial for us. Okay, and I'll mention one specific example here of honing in on one thing that often is really helpful, especially with people with dissociative disorders or borderline personality disorder where people have quite complex difficulties around managing emotions, their interpersonal relationships, impulsive behaviour, that's where it can come up. But this is one thing I tend to suggest as a go-to thing for people. And now what I'm looking to highlight here too is I think there's great benefit in looking to hone in often one main theme. So when you mention that notion, like say metaphorically working on a thousand different things, I reckon it's really worthwhile thinking of what is the one most important pattern you're looking to address. Maybe one or two, but particularly one. When I see people with dissociative disorders, especially if they've had some abuse history, so what that means is they've not been so confident that they can keep themselves safe or protected from others who might exploit them. That's often how it will show up. And the person might have amnesia, they might have feelings of depersonalization of being outside their body. Again, difficulty managing painful emotions, impulsive behaviour. And often what I really hone in on with people is the notion of boundaries and emphasise there are a couple of key things. Well, one principle, say with dissociation, is looking to manage painful feelings from within your own skin. So allowing for discomfort that's going to come up in everyday life, but looking to stay grounded to some extent or within your own skin, letting yourself feel reactions rather than just switching them off, that could be really helpful. But the other thing is boundaries. And I'll give an example of how one fellow applied that. He understood the idea of boundaries and the idea is that they're strong enough to protect yourself or buffer yourself or help yourself keep safe. But also, they're not so strong that they shut people out. And this is an example of how a person who I would have seen for, say, half a dozen times would have applied that principle around boundaries. One is, there was quite an intense interpersonal dynamic going on in that person's house after someone had returned home. 
and so it was going to be important for him to have a bit more space. What he did is he recognised that he could set up a space in a corner of the shed where he could spend some time during the day, meaning he could have time out from if things got very intense in the household itself, he could set up a corner of the shed with a comfortable chair, things like that, and that would be a place where he could go. He could even go and work with a laptop, for example, if need be, but also make it comfortable enough to spend time. Now, that was boundaries to affect a safe place that would maybe help deal with more intense conflict or interpersonal situations. That's an example of a boundary. And the fact that he could follow that through mindfully and create that safe space for himself was also symbolic of doing something for himself rather than being self-denying, considering his own needs. But a second thing did in terms of boundaries, there was a situation where he felt that his interests weren't being so fully considered. And he spoke up. To his partner and made it very clear about a particular situation, something that had bothered him and something that he wanted his partner to be able to deal with in a particular way. But also he planned beforehand how he'd say it, he said it thoughtfully. So basically he asserted himself in a conversation, which in a way was like setting limits. It was almost saying no to a certain kind of behaviour. And fortunately... He pitched it well and his partner responded to that. So asserting oneself or asking for something or saying no in a situation is another way of setting limits. But also a separate thing. Even when there'd been a degree of conflict, his partner asked him if he would join her for a walk. And he said yes. He knew his partner was looking to maybe have a conversation about something as well. It might be a bit uncomfortable, but he said yes. Now, had he said no, that might have been too tight on boundaries. We talk about fuzzy logic, that idea we want to have more strong boundaries in some ways, but not too much, not too rigid. I find that many people with long-term dissociative symptoms or borderline patterns, it really helps to hone in on the issue of boundaries and look to find some balance with that. Usually that means initially establishing more of them or establishing them more clearly asserting oneself a little bit further, looking at how you manage space in a situation. Boundaries can also be if the person finds that they're maybe having difficulty controlling their anger and they think they might be about to lose their temper, it might be going to a different room or taking different space. That's a boundary. If someone makes an unreasonable request, saying no is establishing a boundary. Looking at what kind of touch you accept or don't accept is a kind of boundary. And I find that's a shortcut for many people with quite complex personality difficulties to focus on one issue. And we can imagine the same thing with someone else with unrelenting standards. It's how much pressure they put on themselves in certain situations. The principle applies. But if you take especially one thing, and especially when people are early on, In therapy, they're looking to address anxiety or depression or anger. If they're looking at a personality pattern, if they take one particular theme and look at practical ways of acting differently in relation to that theme, using the fuzzy logic, looking for more balance, that's a way that often people can get early runs on the board and be a little bit more hopeful. 
that they can shift these underlying patterns. And I've seen many people do that and keep on doing it, and it's lasted for many people, and that's a real way of getting extra benefit. Well, that is a, an optimistic note to finish on, Dad, in terms of recognising that you can change and influence some of these patterns if you do identify them. And I suppose just one final note from me, like what really strikes me as being incredibly important with some of this sort of stuff is go easy on yourself, you know, in terms of oh, I think a bit of a gentle touch is potentially required with some of this sort of stuff. You know, if we look at maybe how some things developed, you know, potentially some people have gone through some things in life and it's unfair that you've gone through that. It's just simply not just in a way. But at the same time, having a go at trying to address some of those things, you know, a, it can be a very, very difficult thing. And, you know, if you even inherently within some of this sort of stuff, you look at something like unrelenting standards, someone with unrelenting standards could identify that and think, well, I've got to fix that now. You know, I've got, I've got to be right on my game to get on top of things that way. So I think it requires a bit of a self-compassion, a bit of a soft touch, and recognition that, you know, it's it's hard to go through some of this sort of stuff. It's really hard to tackle and attempt to influence some patterns that have existed for many years, often before we had much insight over what was even going on. So, you know, many of these patterns develop certainly before we had any influence over them. So, yeah, I think it is worth recognising that, yeah, just go easy on ourselves when we uh, we try and tackle some of this stuff. Yes, I think that's a really important point you're highlighting there, Rowan, and that's a final thing that I might comment on, that notion of how difficult it can be to change and the importance of self-compassion, that notion of giving oneself some kind of acknowledgement, allowing oneself a bit of a break when looking to deal with these things, and this is an observation that I would make. One of the things that I notice that helps predict people making lasting change is when they've had real difficulty showing that self-compassion to themselves and acknowledging their positive efforts. They've had great difficulty, even though they've done some constructive things, including acting differently, a little bit of fuzzy logic. They've actually achieved something which is noteworthy, but had great difficulty acknowledging it, and then they start to acknowledge it. A number of people, it'll be about four to six months before they start to acknowledge, oh, but look, at least I did that. Or, but actually I didn't give myself so hard a time because even that didn't work out well. Well, this aspect was good. Or it might just be that they said to themselves, yeah, well, look, that was good. And you notice as a therapist this shift in tone because you recognise as a therapist how difficult it had been for the person to acknowledge that when they'd come back and described a dozen previous things that were really worthwhile and there's not much self-reinforcement going on. And if there's any pattern of behaviour to change, to accelerate change and consolidate change in personality patterns, it's this capacity to acknowledge some kind of constructive effort. Even if it doesn't work out ideally, still acknowledging the effort and certainly acknowledging where it has some kind of benefit because when people are doing more of that, that to me is about the best predictor of more reliable ongoing change. I see that again and again and again. That's a really worthwhile thing focusing on, that acknowledgement of positive efforts. 
Well, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's been a fascinating couple of episodes and I dare say we will do some more on the schemas in the future because it is just a fascinating element of psychology and, and something that, yeah, it maybe is a little bit less spoken about than other elements of psychology, even though it potentially has the same, if not greater, an influence over, over us. So thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Good, thanks, Rowan. Look forward to following up on these themes.